This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And I almost said, welcome to another episode's because we're going to try to do two in one this week. Uh, our desire is to finish up desiring the kingdom from Second Kings chapter seven and the story of the of the aftermath of the cliffhanger we left you on last week and the uh, the four lepers and the Syrian army. We're going to get to that in a minute, but then we're getting ready to start a new series of messages at Rio Vista Community Church on the life of Peter, and so we're going to try to wrap up desiring the kingdom. And then we're going to try to shift gears and, well, actually, maybe not shift gears. Sam, Sam sees the connection here. So Sam's going to lead us on the connection <laughs> between these two. Everybody and, just sighed and rolled their eyes all collectively. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> but, but we're going to go from Second Kings 7 to Luke chapter 5 and talk about Peter's calling. So I guess what I'm letting you know, folks, is – Buckle up. This could be a, this could be a great episode. <laughs> so last week, Sam, we left them with the cliffhanger of, you know, these two women, uh, a horrible situation where one, they, they killed and ate one woman's child and then the other woman, you know, refused to do the same with her child. The king mm-hmm. caught wind of it. He was, he was horrified and decided to take it out on Elisha. He's angry at God, but Elisha's closer than God. So he comes down and he's beating on the door, trying to get to Elisha. And then that's where we had to stop. <laughs> yeah. And so, so what it looks like this, it was a horrible way to end last week. And this desperation of the Syrian army and Ben Hadad, who's been a constant thorn in the side of Israel that's now sieging the city. No food's coming in. Everybody's starving. They're eating, if you remember, dove dung yeah. and donkey heads, I think it was. Um, they're in desperate, desperate straits, and ever, all the food is super, super expensive um, to the point where these women are eating their own kids or coming to, a, to an agreement to eat kids. So the desperation is super high, and Elisha shows up and gives a promise. Right, you know that that things are going to change, and it, actually, this made me think back to the story. If you go back uh, several chapters, when Israel comes against Moab, if you remember that, and it said the king took his son and slew him on the wall. Right, and and I was thinking to myself, like that's pretty wild. But this week, I was looking through some ancient records, and there's actually in Assyria and in other places there were rules. And agreements for when it was okay to start eating your kids, if you can believe that or not, um, during sieges and like when you're when you hit moments of desperation. And so when they come to siege this Moabite city and the king slays his son, it made me wonder if that was a signal like we're this committed, like we're not even going to wait. Like I'll slay my son at the onset of this. Um, all right, so let's pick up this week with Elijah's response to this horrific situation. The king is angry at God. The king has come at, with murderous intent to find Elisha. Like mm-hmm. he literally is intending, he said it, and he intends to separate Elijah's head from his shoulders. So he'll, you notice, 
When the king makes this threat about killing Elisha, notice what he says. May God do to so to me and more also if the head – does that sound familiar? Yeah. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. That's the same kind of language that Jezebel used when she vowed to take Elijah's life. And yep. so, you know, Elisha has had a pretty good relationship with this king who is the son of Jezebel and Ahab. And now all of a sudden when things don't go his way, he wants the prophet dead. And yeah. you find out that this king is a lot like his mom. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Second Kings chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But Elisha said, picking up where we left off last week, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a saya a fine flour shall be, shall be sold for a shekel. Say that three times really fast. See, <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore. And two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, meaning Elisha, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So um, this is obviously, uh, this prophecy here, a is around seven quarts of flour. Mm -hmm. So a good amount of flour a good amount of barley, enough to make bread and and high-quality food here, basically, would both be available for a shekel. When when a minute ago, we were spending, what, 80 shekels for a donkey's head? Mm-hmm. Um, so food is about to become plentiful and cheap, but the messenger, the captain, is skeptical, right? Yeah, I mean, his question is just, it's mocking. It's dismissive. Oh, yeah, if the Lord opened the windows of heaven, this this is not going to happen. The Lord himself couldn't fix this situation. How in the world in 24 hours is our situation going to change? Yeah. And he's he's being derisive. And so Elisha lets him know, okay, well, you will see it, but you're not going to get to eat any of it. Yeah. Um, meaning you're, you're going to die yeah. in this. So uh, our next group of people that we're introduced to are these four lepers that are now just outside the gates. So the scene shifts to the gate of Samaria, where in verse 3 it says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, well, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So, the, I mean, obviously they, they understand that their odds are not good with the Syrians, right? I mean, these are lepers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of bad options. <laughs> but, but one of them has a, just a glimmer of hope. Yeah. They know there's no food in the city, so they go in the city and they wait up there. They're going to be like everyone else, and eventually everybody's going to starve to death. If they sit at the gate, the same situation's coming. So they're thinking, hey, the Syrians at least have something. There's yeah. at least a chance that if we go to them, we'll have life. Yeah. Small chance. I also wonder um, – when I was working on this for study notes for personal worship, what struck me as I was looking at the, the the four lepers was that sometimes I think God works this way. Sometimes God takes away every option except mm-hmm. the one thing that seems impossible. It's like there's – I've got five different ways I can approach these. You know, A couple of them make sense. A couple of them are pretty far-fetched, and one of them is no way, Jose. That's not happening. I'm not going to be able to do it. And it's like the Lord will close one door after another. One thing after another becomes evident that the only way to go is this method that if God does not do something here, nothing's going to happen. And I think that 
I think God does that. And in, and in doing that, he makes an impossible choice possible. It's like I could not choose this on my own. There's nothing in my rational brain that would say – I can I'll I'll choose this option, but God closes down everything else and goes, no, mm-hmm. this is the way I want you to go. And I think yeah. he did that with these lepers. Well, I think he did that in some sense in my story. It wasn't necessarily death, but it was like, you know, there's all these options of how I could find satisfaction in life, how I could go out and chase my identity or my value or my whole meaning for life. And I began chasing it in all these different directions like so many other people do. And you come to realize there's no hope in any of these. You know, If it's partying, if it's money, if it's career status, all these things, you you chase down and you realize that they're all dead ends. There's right. no there's no ultimate payoff and you're left, you know, with with this option that, you know, maybe maybe God has life. Maybe God has some sense of satisfaction. So while he's not my first option, he's the only option left. Yeah. And that was kind of my story. So so what the lepers did in this case, it says in verse 5, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Verse 6, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. So God used special effects to uh, <laughs> to make the Syrians run away. Um, it's not the first time he's done that. You know, he, he's God has a habit of confusing the minds of the of the bad guys in the story and and getting them to do something like this. But it is it is interesting that the Lord chose to do this by creating this like the Syrians had that city wrapped up. If they had been thinking mm-hmm. clearly, they would have known there's no way that the king of Israel could have reached out to the to the Hittites and the Egyptians. Just it can't happen. And armies that size can't move without this had to be God not just giving them an auditory you know, illusion, but God, again, I think was really kind of creating confusion in their minds. Mm-hmm. And the Hittites, by the way, like we have historical records where the Hittites that used to be, uh, their their empire was up in Turkey. And when they kind of hit the twilight of their empire, they were forced out and migrated closer and closer and closer to the territory of Syria. Uh-huh. And so they used to get in raids all the time. The Hittites and the Syrians were, were at war quite a bit. We know that from historical records. And so, so it's not out of the ordinary for them to think, oh my goodness, the, the Hittites are coming on a raid party or whatever. Um, and so it's interesting that the Lord uses, I mean, you imagine the previous chapters where we've talked about chariots of fire that were kind of hidden from, from plain sight mm-hmm. that were spiritual in nature. They're at work here, but the, the scripture leaves us to kind of imagine that that's going on. It doesn't tell us what's going on. It just says that they hear this. Um, I've read some commentaries that talk about there's a fault line that runs through the Jordan Rift and maybe there was an earthquake and the sound of rumbling and, you know, the ground shaking and everything else would have had them thinking an army was coming. That's, I mean, that's a stretch, but it's a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But at, regardless, something has led them to think we're in danger. Run for your lives. Right. And it's not like gather your stuff. We need to move. It's run for your lives. This is imminent. Something big was going down. Right. And well, and that's a, that is a good point because obviously if an army felt like there was another army coming against them that they did not want to fight, you know, an orderly retreat would be pack up your tents, pack up your stuff, let's get out of here. So in this case, there was a, a terror element to it where they were really afraid of what was about to happen to them. And they literally ran from the camp and left their food and their supplies and everything else mm-hmm. behind. So. so the lepers had to feel like they had hit the jackpot with the lottery <laughs> here. Uh, in verse eight, it says, and when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. First thing was, we are hungry and thirsty. We're going to sit down. You know, the guy left their Chick-fil-A behind. We're going to get that stuff. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So they're, they're immediately, they're plundering the camp and they're mm-hmm. doing it selfishly. They're hiding things that they're taking. Um, so they, they know that at some point the jig is going to be up, right? They know at some point people are going to find out that the Syrians have left and they're figuring by that time, I want to have all my Bitcoin hide hidden behind the bush <laughs> out there. And they're taking, they're hiding all the stuff in there. Um, and then they get an attack of conscience here, Sam, um, mm-hmm. verse nine, they said, they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Obviously, an attack of conscience, but also, I think, a healthy realization as they were. And I'm putting myself in the situation now. Me and three of my buddies, there's a camp here where there were thousands of soldiers. And so that's a lot of stuff. And and mm-hmm. we're thinking, all right. Even as fast as we're getting the Bitcoin shoved down to the ravine, (laughs) we're not going to be able to empty this camp out before the city wakes up tomorrow morning and finds out that, you know, they've been that we're that we're basically plundering without them. And so they're a little bit afraid, I think, of what's going to happen to them when the king finds out that they didn't come back and share the largesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I think that there's there's also some bit that uniquely a, a leper would have been the perfect person for God to use for all of this. I mean, from start to finish, um, the fact that they're lepers, the Levitical law meant that while they were um, infected with leprosy or whatever it would have been, whatever skin condition they were infected by, that they had to be outside the gates of the city. And so that, for starters, is here you have these lepers that are not inside the fortified gates that are, you know, they're like close to it, hoping for safety, but they're outcasts, so they're uniquely perfect for God to use. They're also poor. They're also desperate. Um, and so and when you get to this moment where they see this abundance, they know what it's like to sit at the gates of a city and have to beg because they can't work for a living. They know what it's like to be desperate, and they've known this for as long as they've had this condition, for as long as they've been outcast. And so while I think you know, they say we don't want to be punished but they have a conscience that hits them and they realize there's a whole bunch of people in that city who are begging, you know, yeah. who are desperate and they know what it's like deep in their bones to be desperate. And, you know, that's that's the kind of person, that, those are the kind of people that God typically uses when he brings about great deliverance like this is it's, you know, it's not the wealthy who get it. The, you know, it's not the powerful who tend to get it. 
you know, remember Naaman. If it wasn't for Naaman's leprosy, he would have missed the kingdom of God. Sure. Um, it's it's God using the the recognition that that we have this weakness in us that makes us open um, to be His His agents in this world to embrace His gospel to recognize our neediness. Um, because you think about all the people in that city, the king, the king's agent who's mocking Elisha, they don't have the humility. To recognize that they are in dire straits, mm-hmm. you know, and that they are they're doomed. Yeah. And you know, when you read this story and you take it in the sense that this is really all of our stories, really. Like we are stuck in a life where we know how the story ends. Mm-hmm. We we know that this life ends in death. I had that conversation with somebody this morning. We know that everything we work for, all of our our reputation, all of our money, all the relationships that we build, if this is all there is, death swallows it all. Death is going to win. And so everything that we bring to the table, all of our strengths actually become weaknesses if they keep us from pursuing God. But these lepers are not looking to themselves. They know what it's like to be beat down. They know what it's like to need someone else to help them. And so they're totally open to the grace of God. They're open to generosity because they recognize how important generosity is right? specifically to them. And I think that's why when Jesus comes in the Beatitudes, he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I heard Tim Keller preaching on this and he says, you know, the problem is, is most Christians are middle class in spirit. And, mm. and when I say Christians, I mean self-identified Christians. It's sure. like – yeah, I don't. I, I get it. You know. Yeah. Okay. We've got spiritual leprosy, but we really come to the table feeling like God. God got a good deal when He got us. You know. We we're we don't really need that much help because we we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're really okay people. And when you come to the gospel, middle class in spirit, it's not precious to you. Mm. You don't have the same response. You're not overwhelmed by the gift of it and the amazing nature of grace. Um. But when you identify with the leper, when you identify with the prostitute, when you identify with the lowest rungs of society, because spiritually that's who we are apart from Christ, now when God extends grace and deliverance, oh my gosh, to me, uh, it's overwhelming. And so he always tends to use lepers. Yeah. And I also think that it's a worthy a connection to make between what this story is talking about, which is the provision that they found food and drink and, and those sorts of things mm-hmm. and the gospel. Um, because what this represented to these lepers and to the city then is life. And mm-hmm. really that's the, you know, what God provided for that city in driving off the Syrian army and leaving a big pile of food right outside their door is the same thing that God provides for us. It's life. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. not a big pile of food outside my door, but it is the it is the the true bread. It's the gospel. It's that mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's the it's the food that will satisfy me in a way that will never end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just as good a news for us. You know, we're like sometimes we're, it's hard for us to relate, especially as Americans. Mm-hmm. It's hard for us to relate to the whole idea of famine. Um, which is why I'm like, you know, these stories about famines kind of like, well, that must have been terrible. And I'm like, 
we as a culture, as a people, we have a spiritual famine, you know, mm-hmm. that's every bit as severe. Mm-hmm. And and the gospel is just as good news and just as life giving on the spiritual side as a big pile of food would have been had there been an actual famine. Yeah. Ex- eternally so. Yeah. And so in that like you said, this is this is a picture of what Christ has done for us. You know, he has won the victory. He has plundered the enemy. He has gone down into the grave. And he has taken the spoils. Like death has no claim on us anymore. Our enemy is defeated, and now we have life, and we have life abundantly. And now all we have to do as lepers is to recognize what our God has done for us, and to go and take the spoil. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, there's a, there's a song. Uh, a guy named John Fisher was a, a musician in the '70s and '80s, and probably after that, but I kind of lost track of him at that point, and also became an author, Christian guy. And he had a song uh, back in the 70s that, that kind of stuck with me. That Basically, the course of the song was just that he's singing that he's just one more hungry beggar showing where he found food. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not that there's nothing special about him. There's nothing exalted about him. He's a hungry beggar, you know, just like we all are. But he's mm-hmm. found food, and he wants to show you where. And yeah. I've always, I always liked that song. I'm just one more hungry beggar showing where I found food. Uh, was a great lyric. So. I can appreciate the fact also that the leper started by burying stuff. You know, their 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 fleshly instinct was, ooh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm gonna mine. Yeah. And then in the middle of that, they're going, this is wrong. Yeah. This is yeah. wrong. Go- Gollum started off with my precious, and yeah. then it got to the outside of the camp. Is like, no, oh, they're precious. So he, yeah. he had a change of heart. Yeah, uh, it gets to that uh, pen and teller. So pen is it? Te- is it pen or teller who? I can't remember which one's which. I think it's Penn. Penn is the one that talks. Penn is the one that talks. So if you heard it them say it, right? If you heard them say anything, it would have been Penn. <laughs> All right. So Penn Gillette has the, and it's made its way. It's got you know millions of views on YouTube. But he talks about how somebody came up to him at one of his shows and gave him a Bible. Right. And he's like, he was really kind. I appreciated it. He wasn't you know preachy. He just said he loved me enough and really wanted me to have this. And it meant a lot to Penn. Like I was surprised that it that right. it did because he's an atheist. Right. And his conclusion. As he was thinking about that, it's like I appreciated that man. Like he, he believed what he said, and he believes. You know, if he believes that there is a hell, you know, he believes that he's trying to save me. And then he pauses and he's like, "How much do you have to hate someone to believe that an eternal fate is in front of somebody, either heaven or hell, and to know how to to where rescue lies and to not share it with somebody who's destined to hell? How much do you have to hate him?" And it was like, "Ooh, yeah." Such a, I mean, it's a convicting question, but I imagine in some sense that's what hits the conscience of these lepers. Like there's a whole city that doesn't know where the food is. Right. We need to go tell them. Right. Well, that, that applies to us too. We know where the food is. Right. So uh, verse 10, it says, So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night, and this is where I'm saying he's reverting to form here, and (laughs) said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. 
They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. In other words, in other words, let's just put this in perspective here, Sam. The king was willing to stay there in the city and starve because he was too afraid that this mm-hmm. to, to go out and check this out. Yeah, they might die if they go out. Yeah. <laughs> the logic is just it's crazy. It is. It really is. So then, as, as often happens in these stories, the servants of the king have more wisdom than the king. Um, verse 13 says, And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Basically, we're all going to die if we stay here. The Let remaining. us send and see. Yeah. I, did you notice the remaining horses? Remaining horses, horses yes. <laughs> Which means They've been killing there's been eating. some horse stew yeah. going on. Well, better that than Yeah, I mean, totally. So, but, I mean, they're giving away by letting these five go. They're they're saying goodbye to some food, too. Right. So, right. yeah, but better better to go and see. It's like, It feels like Pascal's wager a little bit. It you does. Know, which, which is, you know, okay, so let's let's say that there is a god – and you, you wager by faith to say, you know what, I'm going to live in light of the fact that there is a God. If you're wrong, what's the worst? And he says, but if, <laughs> but, if there, but if there is a God and you say, I am not going to give my life to that, then the consequences of that are devastating. And yeah. so you're wiser to trust that there is. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the best and most faithful apologetic to use, but it, it makes not. sense to me. But it does, it does <laughs> seem practical, right? So verse 14, so they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. I mean, these guys were, the Syrians were booking out of there so fast, they're like, This this armor is heavy. I'm dropping it. You know, it's like they're shedding armor, dropping swords. The shields are scattered. By the, I just want you to picture this, folks. What we're talking about here is the Jordan River was crossed by a bunch of scared, buck-naked Syrian soldiers <laughs> running away <laughs> from the Lord. You know, it's like they were dropping everything, Sam. <laughs> it would have been quite a sight. It would have been. It would have been. So it says, and the messengers returned and told the king. Verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And then verse 17, now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned, so the guy that was the messenger earlier, to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For the man of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow, in the gate of Samaria. And the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So the I, I, the other thing, too, is that let's just imagine this scene for a second, which is the captain is out there. I'm picturing this now. You know how I do these things. 
I'm picturing this captain at the gate going, all right, all right, form orderly lines, one at a time. You got, you know, and they're just like, Bwah! it's like Friday morning after Thanksgiving. Yes. <laughs> the crowd's just pummeling over people. It's, it's just, you know, or it's that last day of school where you're trying to get the kids to line up in the hallway and come out in an orderly fashion. And they <laughs> right. hear that final bell ring and they're like, we're out of here. <laughs> we're, we're coming out through every door and window in the place. We're just flooding the roads, you know. Um, I think it was something like that. I think the, I think that this captain was probably trying to maintain order in the gate, mm. and as a result of that, uh, was trampled. So you know, one of the things that I find fascinating about this, and it just goes to God's goodness, and maybe I'm seeing too much into this, maybe not. He calls these four lepers, right? And they go out there, and their their conscience is is pricked, and they say, you know what, we can't do this. Back in the city. God has ordained this entire thing. Nobody in the city besides the prophet has shown any kind of faithfulness or righteousness, right? Right. You've got the king who wants to kill the prophet. You've got his his underling who is mocking God. Then when they hear there's food, you get the people who are so reckless in the pursuit of self-salvation, you know, going mm-hmm. out and, and getting this food – that they're literally, regardless of whether or not this captain was a good guy or not, they trample him. Right. I mean, it's just savagery in the crowds. I mean, there's there's nothing good about the city of Samaria. And and the takeaway is God saves them. There's there's nothing that you look at the city and go, oh well, that is that's that's the reason why God should do that. That's the reason why God should show kindness and mercy. He he doesn't strike down the. The Syrian army, he lets them go even though they leave behind all their clothing and, <laughs> you know, their armor and everything else. Not really their clothing. We're kidding. Yeah. But, Certainly but their you, armor. Yeah, they'd be wearing something under their armor, yes. But apart from these lepers who show some sense and, and humility in, in this whole ordeal, nobody seems worth saving, do they? No. They're just so rotten and yet the goodness of God purely by his grace and mercy – feeds them, delivers them. Um, it's I, it's I remarkable. Make, I could make an argument that the four lepers were probably okay guys in this story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. they, um, b- because they went back and told them, you know, the, that, the, that the food was out there. But That's uh, what I mean. They have some sense yeah. and some humility to yeah. them. Outside of that, like who is God? I mean, and Elisha's yeah. in the city. Yeah. Um, who, what's going on here? So, I mean, does he save the city for Elisha's sake? I mean, does he show mercy to all of these people on behalf of the one who's in the city that he considers his righteous prophet by faith? Um, it's just – it's fascinating yeah. to me when you come across stories like this and you're like, what did you win out of this, God? Like yeah. what what did you gain? It's just pure goodness and mercy to people who are undeserving. Mm-hmm. And if we pause for a moment, you know, we're either the lepers who recognize that we're lepers, <laughs> you know, right. and we need to go out. And, and trust in the word of the prophet, even though they didn't even know. Um, or we're like the people in the city, you know, just savage looking for anything that will rescue us. Or maybe we're um, the Sumerians dropping our backpacks on the way to the river. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could, could be. be. Yeah. Okay. All right. So – and that is the – I mean that's the conclusion of Desiring the Kingdom, Second Kings 7. We see the Lord bring salvation through these four lepers to mm-hmm. this – Vast city. I mean, Samaria, big city, major. The, the saved the people of Israel through that. Yeah. 
Help me make the connection, Sam, between 2 Kings 7 and Luke chapter 5, where we're going to switch to now and talk about Jesus mm-hmm. calling Peter. What's the connection between so, the two? So before we jump from desiring the kingdom, I just want to wrap up like, okay, well, what was that all about? Because we saw, you know, at the beginning of the kingdom, you had the hope with Solomon. Remember, like that's where we started the study and there was so much hope with Solomon. You remember those days? where people cared about what God had to say in the law and built temples and all that. And it's been just this steady spiral down the toilet, it feels like. The kings are getting worse. The people are getting worse. God is getting more neglected. And the whole story of the Old Testament is like, when are we going to find someone who can rescue us? Who is going to be righteous? Who is going to give justice? And so desiring the kingdom, the point of the series was exactly what the name says, like, desiring a better king Mm -hmm. that you don't find in these pages. And so when you get to the story uh, in the Gospels, which is where we're about to pivot now in the life of of Peter, you find that king. And and this calling, you know, God is going to use these four uh, lepers to rescue his people. He called, you know, in a sense, he calls them to take the good news back to the people of Samaria so that they can find life mm-hmm. and to transition. This is a this is a homemade transition here. <laughs> God is going to call his very first disciples to go out into the world and tell the people where they can find life-saving bread. Okay. Um, that would be my best effort at a transition. <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, I have to bring it up because you said earlier, hey, there's a connection between them. So we're yeah, going to we make it. We're, we're really trying to get ahead of the sermon. That's that's, that's basically the goal. We'll that's, stop pretending the, the that goal, they're connected. The, the, the goal here is that we would like to have the – we would like to be a week ahead instead of a week behind, right? Right. All right. So let's look at uh, Luke chapter 5 and look at the story of Jesus calling the uh, first disciples or at least the first ones he called in Luke anyway. Mm-hmm. Um Luke chapter 5, verse 1 says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, this is him being Jesus, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, um, and I guess that's what, the Sea of Galilee, right? That's Galilee, yeah. Okay. Uh, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, which was normal. When mm-hmm. the fi- those nets took a terrible beating when they w- were used overnight. They, they'd throw the nets in. And, mm-hmm. So the big thing they would do in the mornings when they get back to the boat, they'd pull the nets out, spread them out on the beach. They'd clean them. They'd mend them. So basically, they're doing yeah. their teardown after their yeah. work. You know, This is like way more labor-intensive than we imagine. When, when we think of nets, we think of like the nylon, almost fishing line that's right. connecting. The, no, this is linen. And so when it's wet, this is wrapped linen, it would be unbelievably heavy. It would be torn in places. It would be dirty in places. And if you let them get dirty or stay wet – they rotted faster. And so you'd have to wash these things. You'd have to mend these things. You'd have to dry them after every fishing outing. They were tremendously heavy. It was a massive, massive undertaking right. to wash these nets. Which I think becomes important in a minute. We're going to sure. see – there's a there's another that – when we come back to that in a second. Um, verse 3, we see, getting into one of the boats, Jesus did, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people uh, from the boat. Uh, that's that's interesting to me because one of the first thoughts that occurred to me when I was reading Luke 5 was Jesus didn't walk up and it's like he didn't say anything because he didn't say, hey, Simon, can I get in your boat? Is that a, it's like Jesus came, walked, he's like walked right up to Simon's <laughs> boat, sat down and said, could you take me out a little bit? You know, um, and I just thought, 
you, you know, there's a, there's kind of this, this, I don't know if it's a debate, you know, there's a question in theological mm-hmm. circles about whether God is this sort of passive agent who makes this offer of salvation and makes it to everybody. And he kind of, he, he, he puts good advertising out there and he, <laughs> and he entices, he draws, you know, in some way, but not in a way that forces anybody to make a decision. Basically, God is putting out an offer and then he's passively waiting to see who accepts the offer mm-hmm. or, is God pursuing you and me and everybody? Does God pursue us as individuals? Is his mind fixed on us and he's coming for us? Are we the one that's gone while the 99 are in the, the sheepfold? Is God pursuing us and does he seek us? And, and I look at this and I see a very active Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus knew he was going to call Simon Peter to be his follower. And so he comes to Peter. He comes down there where Peter's working on the nets and gets in Peter's boat. It's like Jesus initiates the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the other things about this is when if you read this straight in, in the Gospel of Luke, you're under the assumption that Jesus just walks up, jumps in Peter's boat. Peter's looking at him like he has no idea who this is, and it just feels weird. Right. <laughs> but we know from the Gospel of John that Andrew had already had an encounter with Jesus earlier. Andrew was a was a disciple of John the Baptist. And one day John the Baptist sees Jesus and is like, Behold the Lamb of God and you know, sees Jesus and so John the Baptist had endorsed Jesus and Andrew goes from being a disciple of John the Baptist and says, Okay, now I'm I'm one to follow this guy. He's the Messiah. Right. Runs home, tells Peter, This is the guy um, and and you've got an interesting take on that. That's that's well, probably true. I, you know, I pictured Andrew, and I don't know that this is true, folks. But this is just you know, I inject myself into all these scenarios and imagine what it would be like. I saw Andrew as like the religious brother, probably younger. Peter was married, we know, because Jesus. It says that they went to Peter's house and Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So he had a mother-in-law, which meant he had a wife, mm-hmm. probably had kids. I'm guessing he's the older brother. Andrew was off. You know, Andrew was the religious guy, probably read the Torah all the time, was always talking to them about the law, and he was following every rabbi that came to town, you know, and and so he runs up to Peter, and he goes, Peter, Simon, Peter's name hadn't changed at the time, Simon, we have found the Messiah, and and there's no response recorded from Peter at that point. He doesn't say a word, and I'm just imagining him patting Andrew on the head like, okay, bro, you know, it's, it's I, I know, another Messiah, that's, that's, that's good, that's, that's fine. Um, but that was the introduction. I mean, and then Jesus came up to him and said a very interesting thing. He goes, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, meaning Peter or rock, Petra. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that. It, Peter didn't react to that either because Peter's got to be thinking, okay, so now you found a much weirder Messiah to follow. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was the dynamic. I think that mm-hmm. Andrew probably was all excited, you know, and Peter's like, again, we're excited again. Another Messiah? Okay. Yeah, as they say, the coin had not dropped no, yet. Peter's, not. Peter's like, okay, you know, here's another religious guy. He even calls a master in verse five. We'll see. Yeah, but he's not thinking he is who Andrew's claiming he is. Right. Well, and and that is, and I mean, that's, but it is a kind of a, an important thing to realize that this was not a situation where a strange man came down to the beach and climbed in his boat. <laughs> this yeah, was he's not rude. He's not being rude. <laughs> you know, Simon knew who. Jesus was because Andrew had introduced him. So, um, so it says that he got into the boat, asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Um, and I, I think that's also interesting because 
it's like, all right, so he'd been introduced to Jesus under probably weird circumstances mm-hmm. by a very excited brother, you know, Simon, 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 he's the Messiah. Okay, so he'd had this introduction, and then the guy said something weird to him, like, hey, you're going to be called Cephas. Oh, okay. You know, this whole weird thing. But then he heard Jesus teach. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and hearing the the Lord teach his word, <laughs> I mean, his word to the crowd on the beach. I'm just imagining that that had to be an absolutely like mind blowing experience. Yeah, I, I've been out on the Sea of Galilee twice now on on two different trips, and it's it's really fascinating. This area where they believe, you know, right at right in this region of Capernaum, um, the the hills that come up from the Sea of Galilee form this kind of natural amphitheater. And so when you're out on the water, your voice carries in all directions up these hills. And so Jesus would have been teaching to quite a, an expanse sure. of land and all of the people that were on these shores where the industry is happening are all hearing this. Um, so he's taking a position as a public teacher when he gets in this boat and begins teaching not just the people who are immediately in front of him but all along the shoreline. Um it's it's a beautiful place, by the way. I love mm-hmm. the Sea of Galilee. So and and so that you know, essentially, we're kind of tracking Peter's mindset here. A guy that Peter knows, you know, he's an acquaintance, comes up, gets in his boat, says, "Push out from the shore a little bit," and then he hears him teach the you know teaching the people. That's got to be something that's obviously working on his head. And mm-hmm. then it says, in verse four, it says, "And when he's finished speaking, he said to Simon." Put out into the deep. In other words, go away from the shore. Go out a ways and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And and this is what I was saying earlier about keep this in mind here about those nets. The fact is that what Jesus was asking Simon to do was essentially, I'm asking you to put the nets in the water. You're going to have to redo everything you just spent all mm-hmm. that time doing. That was a big. That was a big step of faith. He was asking Peter to yep. make. Yeah, and they're going to have to dry out again. You're going to have to clean them again. Yep. They're going to be just as heavy when they get back in the water. And you imagine, you know, Tom was telling me that the average fishing back then used a hundred feet of netting between these two boats. So a hundred mm-hmm. feet of netting that's made out of linen would have weighed outrageous amounts. Sure. One commentary says a thousand pounds, and you're having to start all over again. This right. is not just, you know, it's not throwing your cast net. <laughs> yeah. right. This is this is a lot of work. It's not drop a hook in and let's see if we catch a bass. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know, and on top of that too, the other thing that we know about, you know, Peter Simon was I keep saying I'm going back. His name is Simon at this point. <laughs> he will be called Peter, but right now he's his given name is Simon. Mm-hmm. Um so he is a professional fisherman. This is what he does every day. And he knows when the fish run. He knows when you're going to catch fish. And it's mostly at twilight or dawn. It's like night, nighttime, basically. Mm-hmm. That's why he said, we toiled all night and took nothing. Because that's when the fish are feeding. It's when they're active. During the day, when the sun is hot on the water, the fish get sluggish. They stay down low. People don't fish at high noon. They fish in the mornings. They fish in the evenings. It's twilight. It's dawn. That's when the fish are feeding. So, Simon is thinking to himself, not only are you asking me to do this thing, which is going to read, I'm going to have to clean these nets again, (laughs) but he's also saying, I want you to fish at a time when I know you're not going to catch anything. 
So it's like it, it is really like go get the empty vessels, <laughs> as many of them as you can find, you know, hearkening <laughs> back to the widow. But it's 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 what I said was it's kind of like, you know, Naaman, go wash yourself in the Jordan. And Naaman's mm-hmm. like, wash myself in the Jordan. Really? The, you know, that all of these, you know, That's Jesus going to work. Yeah. Or, or when um, Judah and Israel's armies were in front of the city of the Moabites and Elisha says, dig ditches. Make make <laughs> valleys, dig ditches, make places cisterns for the water because the water's coming when there was no water and had been no water. Mm-hmm. This is the same kind of thing, Sam. He's asking Simon to take a big step of faith, and Simon's thinking, this isn't going to work. Yeah, I mean, it, there's no reason to. Right. It, it would make no sense. I mean, if, if he'd have come to me and you know I didn't realize that he was God and made that same request, I don't know that I would have had the the deferential respect that Peter has right. to say, yeah, I mean, I would have made excuses. I'd be like, hey, come come back tonight, yeah. <laughs> and, happy and we'll to. try this. Right. Well, and, and I mean, obviously, that was a, an indication, I would think, of how profound listening to Jesus teach was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Because he went from, this is the crazy guy that my brother's following now, to master. We mm-hmm. toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word... I will let down the nets. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, that was James and John, by the way, uh, to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats with so (laughs) much fish so that they began to sink. And at that moment, at that moment, Peter knew who it was that was in the boat Mm -hmm. with him. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's like at that moment he realized I'm standing in the presence of God. And what he does right then, I think, is he expresses his deepest felt need, which is Mm -hmm. Simon Peter knew he was a sinner. Yeah. And that's that's the point where – Every time somebody in the scriptures comes into the presence of God and they realize that they're in the presence of God, they all have this very same reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, they fall down. They want to hide. They Their knees buckle. Um, they just have no strength left because they're standing in the presence of this holiness, this this righteousness, this this thing that you just can't stand in front of. It makes him realize how inadequate he is. And he falls, and yeah. it's like, depart from me, depart from me. I, sh- you shouldn't be in my presence. I'm unworthy of you. And there's a real sense of, of humility here. But you see also that Peter doesn't doesn't quite see the character of God in this. You know, at the end of the story, um, you're going to have, you know, where where Peter, and we'll see this in later episodes, where Peter denies the Lord and has this great shame, and when he sees the Lord, he's leaping to get to him. He can't wait to get to him, you know, Mm -hmm. after he had come to find out the character of God. When you say depart from – when you acknowledge I'm a sinful man, that acknowledgement shouldn't make you say depart from me, Lord. That should make you say, oh, my gosh, I need to draw near you, Mm -hmm. even more so because he is the one who saves. He's the one who cleanses. Um, and I love this idea. You know, the whole Peter's right, right at the beginning of this, everything is about the nets. He's cleaning his nets mm-hmm. and, you know, you don't want to let your nets down again. And when Jesus is performing this miracle, what's happening? <laughs> I love this. The nets are all breaking. And, and what is Peter not saying? 
oh, my nets. <laughs> he could care less about those nets. These things that were his industry and his livelihood and everything else, just a moment before, now all of a sudden they're all breaking in front of him. This massive catch. God has given him more than he knows what to do with. His nets are breaking. And the only thing that he can think, he could care less about his nets. He's absolutely overwhelmed because he knows now who he's in front of. And he's he, not only does he not care less about the nets, but he doesn't care about all the fish they just caught or yeah, their right, boats yeah. that are sinking. It's <laughs> like, again, when I was kind of going through this, putting together study notes for this week, it, I thought, you know, I'm thinking that that Peter living with Andrew probably heard the Torah read mm-hmm. to him a lot. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the law, the prophets were probably read by his bro- kid brother to him. Yeah. And I'm going to find out, by the way, Andrew was probably his older brother later, but I'm just going to go with kid brother. I'm projecting. Um, and hey, Exodus 33, 20, right? God says, no one sees God and lives. Mm-hmm. And Peter's thinking, I'm standing in front of, oh Lord, Adonai, God. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead, you know. So some of it, I think, Sam was self-preservational. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I know what you do when a sinful person is in your presence. I understand what happens. I don't want to combust here. All right. <laughs> yeah, you know? that, and that takes you back to like one of the prophets that you know, one of the promises that was given to Moses, because Moses has this conversation with God 1,400 years before Peter. And Moses has a conversation with God, and he's like, okay, I can't see your glory and live. All the people at the base of Mount Sinai can't see your glory and live. So how are we ever going to get to know you? How are we ever going to get to see you? And God gives Moses a a promise, and he says, I am going to send to you a prophet like you. And he's talking about the Messiah, the Savior. And what Mm -hmm. he's saying is, if I came to you with my glory, you would fall apart at the molecular level, as you say. Yeah, Isaiah, I'm undone. Woe is me. Yeah, it would be devastating for you. And so I love you so much, I'm going to send you somebody that you can stand in front of, you know, me in human flesh that you can relate to where my glory doesn't incinerate you. And Simon Peter, uh, you know, if he knew that passage – is at least realizing what is behind this skin right. is the glory of God yeah. hidden behind human flesh. I, I know we've talked about it in the past, but that passage in Isaiah when – I guess what's was Isaiah 6 where he talks about mm-hmm. you know, he sees the Lord in his throne and his glory filled the temple and basically pronounces woe on himself and says that he is mm-hmm. – but the actual word there is, is like uncreated, unmade. <laughs> it's like I, you know, Isaiah was saying – I'm being deconstructed, you know, my, my molecules are flying apart, you know, it's like, um, and that is, that's a, you know, that we think sometimes about God and, and, and in many respects, God is a lot like us. Uh, there's, there's, there's so much, he created us in his image. There's, there's things that are similar. And yet the one thing that I would say about God's hand that I can't conceive of really is how other his mm-hmm. holiness is. It's like, I understand it's on a level that my brain can't comprehend, and one day we will see it, and one day we will re- exult in it, but it's almost incomprehensible to me. And, mm-hmm. and, and the reaction to everybody in the scriptures who sees it is, you know, this is like irradiating me. Like, mm-hmm. it's amazing, you know? Yeah. I, and like I said, that is the response. If you go through the scriptures, it's the response of Adam. It's yeah. the response of Jacob. It's the response of, of Moses. It's the, I mean, you can work your way through, and everybody who has this encounter with the Lord has the same response, which is, I'm undone. I can't handle this. It's yep. too much. It's too much. Please yeah. depart. Um, 
And that is the best starting point for a relationship with the Lord. It's like the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. You have to recognize how inadequate you are before your creator, how much you have marred his design, how much you've, you've made a mess of things, how inadequate you are. And, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, and so we, we, we got a pretty good corner on guilt. Sorry for, for my Roman Catholic audience. You know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> But there's there's a problem. Like you can't just say, "Oh, I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. I'm a piece of garbage." When you're in the presence of Jesus, you know it doesn't allow you to stop there. It's yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I'm inadequate. I can recognize the truth about myself and how far I fall short, but I can't stop there. There has to be a comma. But the Lord looks at me and sees me as so precious that He would be willing to die for me, and therefore. I'm more precious and valuable in the eyes of the one who is infinitely wise and who knows all things and can measure out things accurately. I'm infinitely valuable in his sight because he would give his life for me on a cross. Mm -hmm. And so though I'm inadequate and I have no reason to be braggadocious, I have no reason to say to anybody, hey, look at me. I'm better than – no, no, no. (laughs) I am a sinful man. That never changes for Peter on this side of glory. He will remain that sinful man. What Mm -hmm. changes in Peter is not his estimation of himself. It's that he gains an accurate picture of the Lord's perception of himself. That changes Peter. That's what the gospel does is it gives us a freedom because if we're honest, all of us feel like failures at times. We all recognize that we're selfish. We all do things we wish we hadn't done. Like we're – we're a mess. What the gospel does is it gives us the freedom to say, stop hiding. Mm-hmm. I, the Lord sees it. Yeah. He sees it and he still loves you. Stop putting the mask on. You can be yourself because notice what Jesus doesn't do. When, when Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know what? You're right. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, like, Jesus knows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, He knows who he's after. He right. sees. He knows more about Peter than Peter does. Yeah. Well, let's read that conclusion here in verse 9. For he and all who were with him, we left Peter kneeling in the fish. So let's get back to poor Peter. Uh, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, and I love this answer because this is exactly what you're getting to. He said, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's like... So his his comment to Simon is, I, first thing is, don't be afraid of me. You know, don't be afraid of me. And then he calls him to the mission of catching men, of, of spreading the gospel, and, and says, verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. No questions, mm-hmm. Sam, no hesitation, no half measures. No, it was like the decision was made. We're following him. <laughs> yeah. He got a glimpse of what was in front of him. Yeah. He understood how precious this God was who was in front of him, and he was willing to leave everything. I was recently writing um, in a chapter of a thing that I'm doing right now about the name of the church in the original Greek is ekklesia, and that's from two Greek words, ek meaning out and kletos meaning called. And so put them together in the church, the name of the church is literally the called out ones. Mm -hmm. And you, you really, you go through history and you look at all the people that God used most mightily, and every one of them is called by God out of something. They have to leave everything behind. That's true 
of of Noah. It's true of Abraham. It's true of David. It's true. I mean, go down the line, mm-hmm. and it's true of the apostles. When when Jesus called them, it said they left everything, and they did so gladly to grab hold of Him. And so, like that's that's to be our mindset. We are called out of our former lives to submit everything we are and everything we have to Him, mm-hmm. to following Him, and. You know, that's one of the things, sadly, that is often missed in Christianity as we think of Christianity as God calling us away from stuff. But the reality is God never calls you away from stuff without calling you to something else. Mm-hmm. And in this case, at the most basic level, it's him. He's calling you to leave things that cannot possibly satisfy to grab hold of him who infinitely satisfies, mm. whom, whom you can never exhaust. Mm. Um, I love that. Yeah. The the mission of taking that good news to the world is so important that mm-hmm. it's worth anything that you would have to give up in order to to accomplish it. Yeah. And the parallel that's going on there is something that's really comforting to me. Um because it's almost like Jesus is leading Peter through an object lesson. He's been out, out all night in his own efforts. He's been dropping net after net after net after net and he hasn't caught anything. And then at the most, at the time when there shouldn't be fish there, God says, drop your nets, and Peter does, and there's fish there. And then the question becomes, okay, who's responsible for the catch of fish? Is it, is it Peter who was faithful to drop the nets? Well, yes. Or is it the Lord who proved that he was utterly sovereign over all those creatures, that he commanded somehow this large school of fish to come and park <laughs> right <laughs> underneath Peter's boat so that when Peter was obedient to drop the nets, the fish were there. Yeah. And he pulls them up. And so when God says, now you're going to be catcher, you're going to be catching men, you're going to be a fisher of men, the same principle applies. Mm-hmm. Like we have to be faithful to drop the nets, but the Lord is the one who is sovereign over whether or not there are fish beneath our boat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about us. We just have to be faithful to drop the nets. Yeah. Well, that's a good note, and I think it's one that we're going to have to end on. Clock on the Wall says it's that time. Uh, folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, this uh, unique hybrid <laughs> podcast episode where we finished Desiring <laughs> the Kingdom and we jumped into the life of Peter. Uh, over the coming weeks, we'll have a lot more uh, to talk about with respect to the life of Peter, who is someone, I think, for both you and I, Sam, we would agree that Peter is a guy who is so relatable. Mm-hmm. He, I love there, Peter. There's so much about Peter that I see that and I'm like, oh, Peter, I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I think that's why, frankly, that's why God calls Peter's. Yeah, that's why Peter and the fact that Peter is one of his closest friends. He had 12 disciples. He had a few of them, three of them in particular, Peter, James, and John, that were his closest friends. Mm-hmm. And this was the, this is the kind of person that God wanted closest to him. It gives me hope. It's yeah, comforting. It's <laughs> it comforting. It is very comforting. So, well, uh, and we do hope that, uh, that you'll stay with us for the rest of this series. We also invite you to come and visit Rio Vista Community Church on a Sunday morning and join us for the message series, The Life of Peter. We would love to have you join us in worship and see you there. If you do that, let us know that you heard about it on the podcast. That would be wonderful. It would encourage Sam and myself to know that somebody out there listening to the podcast said, I'm going to go check out that church. 
If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. So Out of Water is available everywhere that fine podcasts are free. We look forward to having you back with us next week as we continue with the life of Peter, and we'll see you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.